place it comfortably. The title of this talk tonight is, Is Everything Suffering? Um, it's actually um, a title of one of um, the chapters in Thich Nhat Hanh's book, The Buddha's Teaching. Is everything suffering? Question mark. Um, one of the things we hear about Buddhist teachings quite frequently um, is that life is suffering, um, everything is suffering. Um, there's this strong emphasis on, on, on suffering. And there is a Buddhist teaching um, which is called the Dharma Seals or the Three Dharma Seals. And they are basically emphasizing the essence of what the teaching is, of what the Buddha's teaching is. And that if any teaching doesn't have these seals, you know, or stamps on them, um, then they're not true Buddhist teachings. However, it's very interesting to see um, Thich Nhat Hanh as a very esteemed Asian Buddhist teacher who's steeped in this tradition, um, questioning um, whether everything is actually suffering. But to look at the different types of suffering um, there are, there is the, uh, the suffering of ex simply experiencing unpleasant or painful feelings. Right? That's pretty straightforward. Then there's the suffering of everything falling apart. Everything, every single thing is made up of non-self elements. Right? I'm made up of all non-self elements. The chair is made up of all non-self elements. Um, and so suffering occurs when things disintegrate and fall apart. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is that all things change. So if transience, impermanence, as we all recognise, is the nature of existence. And so suffering arises um, from that impermanence. However, um, what Thich Nhat Hanh, when I read this years ago, is that it actually clarified something which, which I realised I'd found very at least intellectually confusing about Buddhism for a long time, is that the Four Noble Truths is that there's suffering, the cause of suffering, and there's an end of suffering, right? There's an end of suffering, and there's a path that leads to the end of suffering. So how on earth could suffering be a, 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 a sort of a permanent mark of Buddhism? Hmm? if the whole point of it is the end of suffering. And what Thich Nhat Hanh looks at and looks at different um, sutras which reaffirm this view is that if you don't recognise, if you don't clearly understand that life is um, interdependent and interbeing and all things are made up of everything else and so they can fall apart and renew again, if you don't understand that, and if you don't understand and accept that life is impermanent, then you will suffer. Mm -hmm. You could almost guarantee if you don't accept those two things in life, you will suffer. However, if you do fully understand those two things, interbeing, interconnectedness and impermanence, or call it emptiness and transience, same thing, if you do understand those things clearly, the whole point of Buddhism is that you won't suffer. Mm -hmm. 
So to say that life is suffering or everything is suffering is not the true Dharma position. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to go into books and scriptures to recognise that. You can see that from your own experience. So Thich Nhat Hanh points out um, that there's another sutra called the Samyukta, Samyukta Sutra. And there's four references in that sutra that say the three seals of the Dharma, the three Dharma seals are emptiness, impermanence and nirvana. Not suffering, nirvana. Three seals, emptiness, impermanence, or in other words, joy, are the three seals of it. The suffering only arises, like I said, when you don't recognise other two. And it's very important to recognise that this is actually the, the roadmap of practice, a way of understanding it. Um, I remember years ago, um, when I first took up Zen practice, I think even before I went to um, Hawaii uh, or Japan, is that um, I remember coming across um, some lamas and these lamas uh, in the talk they were giving that I went to said that they were standing on a, on a Sydney beach watching the surfers ride their boards in and they said something in the talk about um, that the surfers are really suffering, you know, um, because the wave has to come to an end, right? And I went, really? Because my personal experience growing up surfing on the northern beaches was as a hell of a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine there was any suffering in it at all. But see, that's a, that can be a sort of a, a dark cloud that misinformed Buddhism, you know, can actually spread over things, that everything is suffering. Even, even young boys out surfing waves are really suffering because the wave has got to come to an end. But we knew the wave was going to come to an end. Right? And then we go out and catch another one. Right? And that wave would come to an end. It's only suffering if you expect it to go on forever, which we didn't. So it's a bit of a myth to say that everything is suffering. <clears throat> um, one of the other experiences I had which was quite um, clarifying for me maybe going back now maybe 20 years or more is that I remember I was doing a session and during the Dharma talk um, I had a, a spark of joy, like a wave of joy just arose within me spontaneously. And then I, then I saw the next thing that I did and I cut it off. And it's like I pushed it away and didn't allow it to continue. And when I examined it, it sort of shocked me when I, because I saw it so clearly. And what I recognised that I had some kind of view of Buddhism like this myself, there's no point having joy because it will just pass. So don't cling to it, let it go, don't even entertain it. And that becomes a cutting off of joy. Mm -hmm. And I recognised it so clearly in that moment that it was a kind of a, a habit pattern. And I don't, don't let yourself really experience this because it'll just pass. So don't really invest, don't, don't entertain it at all. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, 
um, are related to joy in a different way. If it just spontaneously arose, um, or the sense of contentment there, then I just allowed it to be there. Just like you would allow pain to be, that just allow the joy to be there. Yes, it'll move into something else at some point, but it doesn't have to be cut off. What some people experience around um, the emotion of joy um, can be formed in our childhood or in our culture. And to be, if you imagine a child, imagine you being a child or one of your children being joyful, it's a wonderful thing to see um, that spontaneity in a child and their play and natural engagement in life. And what can happen for children growing up is sometimes when they express their exuberance um, to, to parents who are either shut off or cynical or whatever, their joy doesn't get mirrored back to them. And they may even be shamed or told to shut up or not be so noisy or whatever. And so instead of that joy being nurtured, you know, and brought out, it's actually squashed down or it's not even, not even recognised. To the point that some people can grow up um, with that kind of conditioning um, to be ashamed of being joyful in an exuberant kind of way. And so they, they shut it down. It's like a message, don't, don't include that in your repertoire um, because it might embarrass you. Because to show joy in a, in a really um, exuberant kind of way or even in a quiet way, you're actually self-disclosing something about yourself. You're not being um, uh, hard to read, you know, and, and there's an exuberance coming out and it's showing how you really are in that moment. And if you're confident that 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 emotion, then you, you can allow it to come out. Um, there's a risk that you may be um, dismissed or minimised or it's not mirrored back to you. But if you're confident of it, then you just allow it to show. Mm -hmm. it's had, that's how joy can, shut, can be shut down through conditioning that occurs to us. And then if we join something like a Buddhist group, and we keep getting teachings all the time, yes, life is suffering all the time, life is suffering, everything is suffering, then we seem to think that's the, that's the baseline that we've got to go back to. But it's a whole contradiction in that when you recognise that there is a release from all of this. <clears throat> One of the ways of dealing with suffering or let's not call it suffering, let's call it pain. Um, suffering is the second arrow that comes with pain. Um, but just dealing with pain itself, some of the teachings you may come across is that you should just like drill your, mind, your mindfulness into the pain, just be aware of the pain and just go into it um, rather than trying to push it away. Um, now, there is a value in doing that, but even that is not necessarily helpful. And I'll talk again from my own experience. Um, a number of years ago, um, I had an extremely painful feeling in my shoulder from a shoulder injury where the, um, the tendon was torn. And it was you know, very acutely painful for about six months. 
And um, I tried working with it mindfully, like really being aware of the pain and bringing my attention right into it. And my experience was it made it worse, not better, as it was supposed to do. Then I tried something different. I thought, okay, I need to include the pain, that is in the moment. But when I take a broader view of my whole experience, nothing else in my body was in pain, was all fine. But this was in pain, but nothing else was in pain. And when I looked through into my senses, everything I'm looking at was fine, wasn't causing me pain. What I was hearing wasn't causing me pain. What I was touching wasn't causing me pain. It was only there. And then when I had that more holistic, broader picture, that all of this is non-painful and this is painful, then somehow I was able to manage it a lot better. It was a really clear experiential learning experience for me in that. And it touches on um, gratitude, like you can have gratitude for all the other aspects of your life which aren't painful and include that. But if you take, if you just drill into the pain, like and narrow down to that, then everything becomes suffering. That's suffering. So we then generalise from there that everything is suffering. But that's not a true mirror of existence. Only this was painful. And then it's important to apply that same learning to dealing with painful emotions. Right? So we can have, we can have a, a painful emotion that actually arises like, you know, sadness, you know, um, betrayal, um, grief, anger, resentment, fear, etc. Um, and it may be a very powerful emotion, but it's not actually all of our experience. You know, it takes up part of our experience, but we're also, our experience is taken up by what we're seeing and what we're hearing, what we're tasting, what we're touching, and the other aspects of being embodied. And if we're aware of pain, you know, we're certainly not about suppressing pain. As a Zen teacher and as a psychologist, I know that very clearly. There's no point in denying pain or cutting it off. But we need to see it in this broader perspective, right, rather than zeroing down on it. And that's what happens often, I think, um, how people's suffering becomes perpetuated. And there's a lot more discussion about this coming forward in psychology even these days. There's a very interesting article which I gave a talk on a few nights ago, uh, or uh, I think our last Sarsinkai, um, based on a, an article in Psychology Today, is that is self-absorption the root of all psychological evil? In other words, it was questioning is self-absorption um, the cause of mental illness and suffering rather than a side effect, which most people generally think it's just a side effect. But the Dharma position is that self-absorption is the cause of suffering. Self-centeredness is the cause of suffering. So sure, there might be difficult things that happen in our life. We might have had a very painful childhood or we felt a betrayal or a grief or a loss or we're unemployed. Mm -hmm. They're the, the first arrows that the Buddha talks about. But the second arrow is how 
our self gets self-absorbed in the problem and the pain and the suffering and then we're in caught in the self-centered dream about all the things which are difficult in our life and trying to somehow think that we can work it out or think our way out of it and the more we become self-absorbed in that original pain the more mental illness health the whole thing starts to escalate downhill into something much more negative and so just to be self-absorbed in pain without seeing the broader picture of coming to our senses and seeing the world outside of ourselves, not just inside, um, helps alleviate that suffering and helps manage that suffering in a real um, practical kind of way. One of the things that I often um, hear people talk about these days um, and it seems like it's almost a, a, a psychological pandemic but so many people when you speak to them say that they or you inquire say that they have low self-worth mm -hmm. and it's almost become uh, like a mantra I feel that people repeat to themselves over and over again that they've got low self-worth and then in groups they share it with one another and everyone sells they've got the low self-worth and it seems to reinforce this self-absorbed pain that everything is suffering. Now I don't want to deny that, that people have, have feelings of low self-worth um, but are they there all the time? Right? Is that the only thing going on? in your life that you feel low self-worth? Not really. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're looking outward on the world rather than just in, um, and you're aware of trees, you know, and flowers, many of those things in Robert Aitken's um, Guthers that we recited the other day, you know, the, the Dharma sparks that are coming up all the time, flowers, children, people, sunlight, Mm -hmm. cars going by, whatever it might be. When we're engaged in that, rather than self-absorbed in the low self-worth, something shifts in that. It's a self-absorption in the, in the low self-worth perpetuates the low self-worth. Mm -hmm. So the whole point of the Dharma teachings, and as, a, as is in our practice principles, caught in the self-centred dream, only suffering, holding to self-centred thoughts exactly the dream. The challenge is to recognise how much we invest the I, the me and the mine in our internal experience and recognise um, that we're just perpetuating the suffering by doing that. That's all we ever see. But I'm realising there's just a, a big world out there that's far beyond what I'm personally experiencing. In, there's two ways of looking at practice. Um, you can describe it as turning in and turning out. And turning in is to be absorbed, but it's not to be self-absorbed. The whole point of mindfulness or working on mu or working on the breath is to be absorbed in mu or the breath uh -huh, or the point of focus. But that's very different from being 
self-absorbed. If you're just focusing on the breath or moo or sound going by, whatever it might be, you're not thinking about yourself. You, that might come up, but we notice it and we just go back to the focus each time. Right? So whether it's secular mindfulness, Buddhism, whatever, if you're doing that all the time, you're actually reducing the amount of time you're absorbed in self-centred thinking. And then it starts, we get a, a clearer picture of what's actually occurring. But as our practice matures, there is a transition from turning within, like the samadhi absorption, to the turning out of being connected with everything. And if you just stay in the self-absorption of samadhi, it's like a peaceful little place you go into but it's all kind of an internal shutdown experience. Like I said the other day, all of the Zen teachers said it's a cave that you can get trapped into. It's like pulling the doona over your head, you know, not coming out again in the morning. So awakening is like it's coming out from out un underneath the doona. It's coming out from the cave into the broad daylight and actually engaging with what is there that's external in your life. So people who mature in their, pra in their practice or they just mature in their life through some religion or philosophy or therapy or whatever, that is, that is the end result of the maturation, this less interested in me and more interested in life. That might be the biology of life, do you know, or the, or the psychology of life or politics or social justice or ecological issues or gardening, you know, anything like that. But the focus becomes a process of connection and, and engagement with the world rather than this self-absorption which keeps coming up all the time. So in summary, to go back to Thich Nhat Hanh's words, yes, there is emptiness, there is impermanence, but you if in if you completely get it and you completely engage and with those, those concepts, not just as concepts but as an experience in the body and you get it in your bones, then life isn't suffering. And an experience of contentment and joy is the natural thing which arises out of that. So as your practice goes along, I would like you to not just focus on what is problematic in your life, include it, and by all means, recognise it, and in, by all means, talk about it with me, but be equally attentive to when there is no problem, you know, and where everything is just okay, and when there's contentment, and, and pay equal attention to where the experience of joy just naturally arises in your mind. You don't have to hang on to it, of course, but you can savour it, just like you can savour anything else in life. You can taste it. You know? Okay, thank you very much.